Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. This has been going on for at least six or seven years now. We've really been a pressure cooker of propaganda. It's political. It's environmental. It's religious. It's... Hi, I'm Mark Groves. I'm a human connection specialist and founder of Create the Love. At an early point in my life, I became obsessed with understanding relationships, the intricacies of how people connect. And through this exploration, I have created a life and a business dedicated to learning out loud and exploring how we interact with each other and the world. This podcast brings the world's top thought leaders, spiritual luminaries, physicians, scientists, researchers, best-selling authors, and health and wellness experts under one roof to discuss the good, the bad, the messy, and of course, the beautiful parts of the human experience. Welcome to the Mark Groves Podcast. I can't wait to dive in with you. I've been looking forward to this podcast episode for a while. I have propaganda expert... Renee Hobbs on the podcast. Welcome. Hi. And you're the author of a number of books, but your most recent book is Mind Over Media, Propaganda Education for a Digital World, or Digital Age, sorry. It couldn't come at a better time. I feel like when I ran into your work, I was like, oh, wow, yeah, I'm trying to decipher this. So thank you for taking the time, making the time. I'm very grateful. I'm really looking forward to our conversation and uh, to talking with your audience about this complicated topic. Sifting through information, especially in, I've noticed so much of a disruption, not just within relationships that I observe, but also relationally within my own life, where there's opposing views or thoughts that are fueled by the information and the silos that we find ourselves in. And so I have found myself in the trap, but also observed the trap that we don't tend to have awareness or be consuming information that opposes what we believe. And this seems to be quite the conundrum, especially with such divided belief systems. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting because now information comes to us. Even just 10 years ago, when we wanted information, we had to make the outreach, right? We had to go be the choosers. But now it just shows up in our lives. And it's been algorithmically curated to tap into everything you already think 
is true and everything you already think you know. And that shift has happened really subtly and gradually over the last 10 years, but it definitely means we live in different informational worlds. So I live in a different informational world than my brother, right? Than my lady down the street, than the the person who takes care of my pets. It, It turns out we are all living in different informational worlds, which is kind of ironic. It is. Right? Given how Everything is at our fingertips. And yet my Netflix is not your Netflix. My Google is not your Google. Isn't that so nuts to think? We think about them as if they were the same thing, but they're not. Yeah, like how are you coming to this different belief than me when I assume or the, yeah, the assumption is that you must be seeing the same things I see. But of course we're not. It's interesting that we have designed algorithms, although from a psychological perspective, it makes sense that the algorithms themselves are designed to reinforce beliefs, to like feed our bias. Yeah. And from an economic point of view, that makes, that's the business model, right? More clicks and likes is more money for social media companies. And a lot of people have a basic understanding of that. But you know what? When we put a Instagram page in front of an average Instagram user, And we say, could you point out all of the persuasion, all the sponsored content, all the propaganda? Could you just like point that out? They don't see it. They don't recognize it because it's also attractive. Yeah. (laughs) It feels good, you know. And and it connects to your values because you've curated it so that it feels like these are the things you care about. So you can't, they can't, it's very hard to be critical of stuff that is emotionally dear to you, right? And isn't that ironic that as much as we're surrounded by propaganda, we can barely even notice it. Yeah. And that seems to be a trap, especially at at least in my own opinion, and I'd love to be proven totally wrong. So I'm totally open, is that in the Western world, there's an assumption that it doesn't exist or that our governments wouldn't do that to us or marketing isn't doing that. Like, I mean, marketing has known for ages that propaganda exists and influence exists. I used to work for a pharmaceutical company, so I'm well aware of how these things function and how we influence physicians' behavior, and then that influences what people get prescribed. I remember talking to a friend of mine who's from China, and he said to me, when I was telling him about how the news felt really disruptive to me, and he said to me, oh my God, I forget that you guys still think the news is real. And I kind of laugh because I definitely have felt that way. I I historically would go to the news when I was younger and look for an update on what was going on in my city, but now I actually find it quite dysregulating and I don't trust it anymore. You know, it's so interesting and that that generational shift has happened really just in the last 10 or 15 years. News always has a point of view, right? And news is always selective and incomplete. But when I was growing up, the guy used to end the broadcast by saying, and that's the way it is, right? As if it was reality. That's so one brilliant. of the big concepts, one of the big concepts that is we have to keep really at the front of our brain all the time is the representation is not the reality. And that doesn't mean it's bad. That doesn't mean it's wrong. That just means that people make symbols, right? The symbols are created by people who have purposes and motives, and therefore they have biases. And that was always true with news. It's not like it's just now true. It's always been true, right? So that's the the Chinese guy's uh, perspective is like, yep, it's true in China, it's true in Russia, and it's true in the United States. 
Yeah, I think we often, I'm Canadian, you know, originally born in Canada, and there is a naivety, at least in my experience, to Canadians. Again, maybe I'm, I'm in my own silo, but where I was like, the government would never do that. They don't, would never alter my perception or want me to, but of course they do. Cause that's, yeah. and so I, I wanted to get in to first off, like, how would you define propaganda? Propaganda is a really complicated word because when you hear it, you already think, ugh. Most people, when they hear the word propaganda, they think Nazi Germany. Yes, that's what they did to, to Nazi Germany to make the Germans like hate the Jews, right? Uh, or to, to feel the war was justified. But propaganda is way more complicated than that. It's a form of persuasion that aims to reach mass audiences by activating strong emotion, simplifying information, appealing to people's deepest hopes, fears, and dreams, right? And often attacking opponents. So propaganda uses these very powerful techniques to bypass critical thinking <laughs> and make behavior change. Now, propaganda can be used for good purposes, like public service announcements that tell you to go get your colonoscopy or whatever, right? And so, like you said, governments have been using propaganda for good purposes for centuries. So people's behavior can be, we can induce people to believe and act in certain ways using the power of communication. And what we're seeing right now is powerful, charismatic authorities can use these techniques, activating emotion and making increasing people's sense of tribal identity, you know, us versus them and simplifying information. And that actually creates this kind of weird loyalties where we feel really loyal to those sets of ideas and we suspend our judgment. When societies are changing really quickly and things feel uncertain, then there's a certain comfort to that. And people then seek out propaganda that aligns with their existing values and beliefs because makes a complicated world easier to understand. Yeah. So when we're in a state of anxiety and uncertainty, we'll cling to things that soothe that, that like soothe those emotions. I feel like we haven't left that state for the last three, two and a half years. You know, I, I was thinking the other day, I would just like a moment where I'm not being inundated with fear, being able to observe the fear, but you know, in my own personal experience, I've had such a desire to understand this because for me personally, assessing the data myself, I didn't feel like I it was necessary for me to get vaccinated. And I can understand that for other people, that was something that was really important to them. But what I found was that language was beginning to create division both ways, that words were being weaponized, you know, to create these ideologies like you're pro, you're anti, you're left, you're right. And those were often overlapping where I would be questioning certain data and just saying, this doesn't make sense for me. I was never, I don't care what anyone else chooses. And I was called right wing. And I'm like, first off, I'm, I was living in Vancouver. You're not even allowed to have a right wing. You would fall right off the cliff of conservatism. But I also found that I was being put in this box that I actually didn't belong to and I felt trapped in it. And I felt like there wasn't a willingness to discuss it, like to discuss my experience. And I get that I'm living in, a, in my own subjectivity here because I'm sure for someone else who might hear about my perspective, 
they're afraid of my perspective. They're afraid what it might mean for them and their choices and, and their, their risk of getting sick from COVID or, but bring it out to anything else. What a right wing means, what a left wing means, what we've associated with these. I've been exceptionally interested in understanding my own emotional journey in this, but also why we've actually removed the ability or, or it, it seems to be in the best interests of whoever it is that discussion doesn't exist anymore. But again, I recognize that I might be falling into a narrative there, even saying that. Look, I like to get my greens on the go. I don't want to compromise on quality. I want to get organic. I want non-GMO. I want all the things. And my favorite product from Organifi will never cease to be the green juice. And now they have a green apple flavor, which kicks ass. I think I can say that. But it kicks ass. It's so good. And it's so easy. You just take a glass of water, take a scoop of green juice, or you take the travel packs. They're great to travel with. You open it up, you put it in the water, you mix it, and then bam, you've got a green juice without the mess, without all that stuff. And you're getting all the nutrients that all these superfoods that are in the green juice provide. So go check it out. Go to Organifi.com slash create the love and you save 20% at checkout. So that's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com slash create the love. And they have tons of amazing products. So go check it out and go save 20%. Well, I mean, I, that, wow, so much to unpack there. I'm really, yeah, I want to make, I want to comment <laughs> Take on Take my three, baggage. Take my three baggage. big ideas. <laughs> I, I, first of all, I love the point you make about the power of language, right? One of the most important theorists of propaganda is George Orwell. Right. And you may know him from his books like Animal Farm and 1984. But George Orwell, during the buildup to the Second World War, was observing how the words we choose to use shape our understanding of reality and then shape how we, how we ourselves perceive our own identities and our own, our own role in society. So word choice turns out to be so powerful. It's the most effective tool in the armament of persuasion and social influence. And when we get confronted, so that decision that they, about how they labeled you, right, was it huge. And notice that you, the second thing you mentioned was this idea about how it created this sense of distance and isolation, this created a gap that instead of feeling like people could be curious and say, oh, Mark, why do you want, 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 ask you questions and try to understand your position, they actually increased the sense of division, right? In order for people to get beyond that polarization that we're now feeling so intensely, absolutely everywhere that language and propaganda are contributing to, because it's financially in the interest of the business model of media to promote that divisiveness. If we adopt the stance of intellectual humility and we say, look, I have encountered only this much information and I have these ideas. I use this language to describe it. And these might not be the right words. What, what are the words you use and why, what does this word mean to you? <laughs> right. Yeah. And if I approach it with curiosity instead of with fear, then First of all, I'm going to learn something. And I feel like in a way, we're going to cure the polarization problem, Mark. I'm an optimist about this, okay? I'm, I am 
Absolutely I'm jumping amazed. in your optimism. I'm like, there's no. We're gonna do it. I love it. I love it, and <laughs> it's stretching our skill set because in order to cure polarization, we have to build bridges to dialogue again. And I, I know I've I've listened to a number of your interviews because I've just been really fascinated by your what you share and and what you're teaching us. And I know you referenced Jonathan Haidt, whose work has had really a profound influence on me. And, you know, I listened to him recently talking about how I think he was quoting his rabbi and he said, you know, what is found beyond the binary is a third opinion and it is wiser than the first, it is seemingly wiser than the first two. I found myself, I don't want to say victim because that's not the right word, but like creating division through my own language out of fear of protecting my own identity. And I have a bit of sadness. I have a bit of sadness even acknowledging that because I was I felt so separated and unseen that I was angry at what represented the lack of compassion from my perspective. What I appreciate about that point, and I think is so, that is part of the, so you you described the problem so beautifully, but you also kind of implied the solution to that. So that giant self-awareness of recognizing how you were contributing to the polarization through your use of language, that recognition is like the major first step. We might not even be able to go farther than that in the beginning, but that's, that's okay because that first step of awareness is actually that opens the door to say, oh, yeah, notice when I use these words, then that put me in a camp, right? That aligned me with a certain set of groups and that let me feel righteous, Right. That let me position myself as superior. So humans need for power intersects with everything, right? <laughs> so true. Good God. Like we I'm have to right. Feel superiority even in the words we use, right? And I actually that's why I think media literacy is um, the kind of fundamental practice that underlies all my interest in propaganda and in digital learning and in social media. And a big part of that is just asking questions and being open to appreciating the multiple ways of knowing. We sometimes say, we, we call it multi-perspectival thinking, that we have so much to learn if we can recognize that, you know, I only have part of the answer. You have a different part of the answer. Together, like, we, like you said earlier, together we come way closer to the truth if we're open to recognizing the limitations of our own perspectives. That word you used, humility, you know, it's such a vulnerable space to be in humility because it's saying what I'm clinging to, maybe my fears are feeding that, my anger is feeding that, the uncertainty, the media I'm consuming, that if I'm willing to pause and say, maybe I don't have it right, maybe I, because emotion makes us not want to leave space open for dialogue. And I understand that. I've been upset with media because I feel like they haven't, they don't recognize the actual cost and harm they create through division, through, through hacking my psychology. Like I didn't give them permission to exploit my amygdala, to exploit my tribalism that is inherent in human biology and psychology. You know, I feel in a way like I've taken the time to question these things. But I personally don't feel like the average person who's stressed about life and consumes media stands a chance against what is actually happening to them. Am I often saying that? Or? <laughs> One thing that I hear is that you are, you, there's a little bit of blame the media there. 
right? Yes. And so yes. I, I hear that. There is. And that's, there is. That's, Accurate. That's, that's definitely going on. And I think, you know, one thing to think about that is this is not about the media or the technology. Before there was media or technology, it would have been the magician or the religious leader who also would have hacked your amygdala, right? (laughs) Who also would have found- Getting hacked no matter what decade it is or (laughs) century. It turns out that humans crave social power and influence, and they use symbols to secure that. And those symbols tap into our feelings. They create, they, they exploit our natural drives and human needs. And good communicators do that well and always have. Today, I think what we have is a situation where layered over that good communicators stuff is a business model that rewards kind of the most superficial, shallow, aspects of our cultural experience. So whereas in previous eras, go back to the Middle Ages, right? The the hacking of our brains was in the service of, you know, love and forgiveness. (laughs) (laughs) So, so whereas now it's clicks, likes, and shares, and it's just about profit, recognizing the values messages that come through media when, when they're trying to influence us, that's a learned skill. It takes practice. And I think Actually, you have to start learning that when you're really young and you have to practice it like a muscle, like you have to to exercise it. Right now, it's really hard. Young people are growing up with this propaganda and persuasion all around them, and they don't even recognize it. And there's not even a space for conversation about it in schools, right? There's not even a space for conversation in the home. We need to be in, in a community to learn to recognize and resist the most heinous propaganda that's around us. Um, and like you said, we this has been going on for at least six or seven years now. At the very least, we can say we've really been a pressure cooker of propaganda. It's political. It's environmental. It's religious. It's um, it's rooted in our hopes for meaningful relationships. In some way, I think the only cure is to create these spaces of dialogue. One of the things I found when I was studying about conspiracy theories. I wanted to understand what made conspiracy theories so powerful in their like pull, right? Because they pull us in. They exploit our curiosity. And I've just been telling you, I think it's good to be curious and you should ask questions. It's like, well. Wait, (laughs) QAnon, I'm in. Your curiosity (laughs) can be exploited. Yes, absolutely. So learning to recognize that is huge. Well, much like as soon as you have doubt in media and the government, there's a sliver there, right? They are all gateways to extremism, whether it's pro-media, pro-pharma, pro-government, pro or against, which again, it, it seems like what is presented to us till we do what you're inviting us to do is these two opposing or opposite spaces. And, you know, there's... That's like 0.1% on each end. And I think in a way, you know, I think of it psychologically, it's a decision heuristic, right? It allows us to make these assumptions. Like if I put you in a box as left or right wing or pro or anti or whatever the label I want to give you, I get to associate all these other things with you. And then I get to make you a little more predictable. And I also might get to dismiss you. I have so much to learn from the perspective of someone who disagrees with me. I didn't always think that way, especially relationally, you know, like I liked 
I like being right. It makes the world easier. But I also recognize that it's not connective. It's a way to make the world predictable and somewhat certain, but it's actually created on a total false foundation because it's shattered as soon as my identity or belief is disproven. And I think psychologically, what's interesting about that is my experience, you know, when you observe it like religiously, but I think also politically now, is then we tend to double down on our belief and, and the more fragile they are, it seems like we get more militant about it. Is there any accuracy to that or did I just make all that up? So th- I think that is a very pretty good description of a, ver- an, a, a, a concept that everybody knows, but also has a big theoretical meaning. And that's the concept of the stereotype. You know, it was first used that word stereotype in 1922 by Walter Lippmann, who wrote a book on public opinion. And he said, we use these mental shortcuts. I think that's what you, that's the term you, you described. We use these mental shortcuts right? And that puts people in boxes and it create it allows us to simplify our understanding of the world. And let's be honest, things are complicated. The life is complicated. And so, so there's some value sometimes to simplifying, right? But stereotypes also quite create a kind of blindness, right? Mm. And that blindness is the dangerous, ex- dangerous and exploitable aspect of our humanity, right? And when that's combined with our natural tribalism, us versus mm. them, it can be devastating. I mean, we, the history of the world says this is the this is like nuclear. This is the nuclear option, right? Stereotypes right. plus tribalism is bad for humanity. So again, awareness is the first step, right? The first step to figuring that out and recognizing that we have to like embrace complexity. And that's what I found when I was learning from the conspiracy, the the scholars of conspiracy theories, especially the scientists who observe that sometimes conspiracy theories are true. Right. right? So you know what? We can't just say if, if if you think there's a malevolent force out there trying to do you harm, you know, sometimes there is. <laughs> right, right. Because history would also say that government manipulates and also does a lot of things in secret. And I, I'm sorry, but I have a hard time fully trusting because I think when I think of the term propaganda, like you said at the beginning, what is propaganda to one person is just positive persuasion to another. And so we might say, well, then it's in the force of good, but to who? And it gets really complex when you add in lobbying and you add in profit, as you said. I don't know. I have a hard time trusting that because I don't, you know, I have a friend who's a lobbyist with uh, in a state in healthcare. And he was telling me, because uh, I wanted to ask all about it. I mean, I remember lobbyists existing in the company I worked for when I worked in pharma, and they really influenced policy. That's why they existed. You wouldn't have jobs if you didn't. And he was telling me that he got enough funding and he said it was basically whoever got more funding could do more marketing to the population and get the policy move forward. And that shows you like most of us don't even know these wheels are turning. So you're saying awareness is the first step, but like, how do, is it even possible to unhook? Like, <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. We, we could, we could open up a page of the New York Times, Mark, you and I, and between the two of us, if we were to discuss it, we could see the fingerprints of the PR firms that were behind that story, right? Wow. We could, we could. Right. Right. And the same is true with 
everything online. When we take a look at it, we can always see. Because, you know, I, and again, I don't know, I don't want to demonize self-interest, right? Self-interest drives the whole world, right? And I can't escape my self-interest. You can't escape your self-interest, right? And Even in having you on here <laughs> was, <laughs> was to make me be like, please make me feel less crazy. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, so we're all self-interested and we can't escape our self-interest and yet we can be in a place where we can kind of rise. I don't want to say rise above it. Maybe Marshall McLuhan said it best, right? He said, look, we're surrounded by, uh, you know, we're swimming in an ocean where the mediated symbols that are created out of self-interest are everywhere. We can hardly see them. We have to try to be like fish jumping out of the water, but you know, fish can't breathe out of the water. So, in a way, we're constantly pushing against this force of the naturalistic tendencies to not question, to accept as to make snap judgments, to instantly react, to point, click and like versus that slower, you know, more intentional strategy. And sometimes the only way people can learn to get to that place is to like unplug for a little while. You know, the fast, the uh, Shabbat, the media Shabbat right? Where, you know, one day a week you choose not to use media. Sometimes the only way to see the biases of news is to stop consuming it for a while. Mm. Yeah, I like that. Because what that does is allows your nervous system to regulate so that you can begin, you know, this last, this past weekend, I did a little test. I have a whoop, like a wristband that measures different vital signs. And it also measures your heart rate variability and you know, the higher your heart rate variability, the more likely you're in parasympathetic. And I unplugged from any news, removed Instagram from my phone. I didn't really use my phone. And my heart rate variability touched the sky. I started to feel a real sense of lightness, you know, a sense of lightness that I hadn't felt in a little bit. And, you know, I don't consume all doom and gloom stuff, but I, you know, I participate in conversation. I have a online profile. I, but, you know, I think of the social dilemma, how they said that no human is, has the capacity to hold the opinion of 10,000 people, but let alone be inundated by so much confirmation and also so much rage. Like I remember listening to those people who did that documentary said, if you're enraged, you're enrolled. And I think about that a lot if I ever get too heightened about something that, that like I've now been brought under the spell of something. Wise, wise words. You know, when the Canadians teach media literacy, they often refer to the counting the number of jolts per minute. <laughs> and I think about, you know, it might be rage, right? It might be, um, it might be uh, the excitement of looking at some kind of aggression. I mean, there, there's a lot of ways people can be jolted. And maybe in the future, there will be tools like you describe your, you know, your Fitbit thing that kind of allows us to get more in tune with the way the jolts provided by media are affecting our biochemistry. I think I think that's probably something maybe listeners in your audience might imagine could be something could be invented in the future. But I actually think it's something that is a kind of awareness, just like with, um, I don't know, meditation or with um, many other forms of practice, uh, where reflection can really be cultivated as a um, as a part of learning. And I'm always asking myself, you know, why is why is this language making me feel this way 
right? Or what ha- what what happened that all of a sudden I'm angry now, right? Why did this headline just make me furious? Why did this photo grab my attention? But the other one, I didn't even notice. So as I start like p- noticing what I'm paying attention to, then I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm more in control, although I know I'm not immune. And I, I, when people say, oh, so Renee, if people are aware and they ask these critical questions and then they become media literate, then they're going to not be influenced by media, right? And I, yeah. um, <laughs> we don't have good evidence on that yet, Mark. <laughs> well, it's so hard because th- I think a lot of, like even the idea that I'm being objective is subjective. You know, because what is objectivity to me is still subjectivity to someone else. And my window of awareness, I might think if it's only focused on this microcosm of a belief and I think objectivity is this, but really objectivity is a 360, you realize that will you ever, you know, is it ever possible? I think your invitation to curiosity, but not to let curiosity become also what's weaponized against you. It's like, shit, is everything a slippery slope, Renee? <laughs> Nicely put, my friend. Nicely put. I do feel like, you know, some people accuse me of being a relativist and they say, oh, Renee, you say propaganda is in the eye of the beholder, right? And so what looks it to is, me isn't it? looks like to me, looks like public service announcement to me and you go, oh no, that's propaganda. So some people say that's that creates that loop that's impossible to break out of. But if I am humble about the limits of my knowledge, right, then then I'm never claiming that I have the answer. And I feel like in a way, part of the- That's liberation. That's right. Part of the part of the challenge comes, can we just like let go of that? Let go of always having to be right all the time. I, I think the idea too, because I, I actually, I agree with you that, that propaganda is in the eye. It is relative to the person perceiving the thing and what their own intrinsic motivations are and whether those motivations are correlated to profit. You have to take all these into account. And I think just saying that you can't do that because it leads to an endless loop doesn't deny the loop exists. And I think it's a, a whole other sense of freedom to recognize that it is a circle, that it is a loop. And then you're able to observe the loop rather than, you know, be captivated by it and also recognize it's easy to do. So I've got awareness. I got to build awareness, media literacy, right? So I got to learn about how media exists, what messages, and always know that there is likely a value and an intention behind pretty much everything. And then be curious. So is the next step to like observe my own biases and that humility you invite? Or- so the, the asking of critical questions, so the asking of questions, so be curious means asking questions and asking questions means searching for answers and searching for answers means searching for divergent perspectives and putting yourself in situations where you're going to encounter perspectives that are outside your bubble. Because you're right, if you're asking questions only inside your with with a, this set of assumptions firmly in place, right? Then those questions are going to just that's going to create the echo chamber. But if you ask questions where you're looking for divergent responses, right? Where you're looking for divergent perspectives, then that's going to expand your perspective and then increase your awareness of your own subjectivity. So I think that's the that's the nice way to I think about it. Awareness, critical questions, search for divergence. That and that's really stretching your tolerance for complexity. Like feeling comfortable with complexity. 
Wow. And knowing that oppositional views. Yes, exactly. What if schools were part of teaching that? Think how friggin' radical that would be. Can you imagine how great our relationships in our world would be (laughs) if like part of my perspective included yours? I always think of that beautiful quote, um, if you draw a circle to exclude me, I draw a bigger circle to include you, which mm. I believe is quoted at the beginning of Jonathan Haidt's book, mm. um, you know, Coddling of the American I Mind. I can't help but think that educators everywhere and parents too, and people who are in caring and meaningful relationships, that deep down, that's what we're all craving right now, right? And maybe craving leaders and perspectives on our institutions that want to make that happen. So we that's why we have to we have no alternative but to be optimistic. Because we can imagine that vision, right? We can imagine it. Right. And the only place we have to go in terms of divergent thinking is to increasing the capacity for complex thinking because Right now, we just want binaries and predictability, I think, because we're in such heightened states of anxiety and, and you know, it's, we have to be willing to sit in, in the anxiety and sit in it and get curious, which I love your invitation to take a break from consumption of media. And it comes at such an interesting time because I literally just did that and could feel a sense of lightness and hope. And also that what I was consuming, and it was divergent thought was still creating dysregulation in my body because it was just like, oof. Well, and the medium that you're exploiting right now, right, the podcast, that creates a kind of simulated dialogue. Now, our listeners who are listening now, you're not actually interacting with us at the moment, but you are participating as you hear Mark, you and I are talking. And that sense of engagement in a dialogue is super healthy for appreciating complexity because you end up ending up in a different place, just like we ended up now in a different place than where we started in this conversation. And that sense of journey of discovery through dialogue, this is the heart of learning. I mean, even the Greeks 2,500 years ago, you know, said Plato, Socratic questioning, right? It's what learning is all about. So even in a podcast where you're where your audience is not actually interacting through their active listening, they are having that same learning journey. And that's, of course, the art of the podcaster, which is what you're doing, my friend. Well, I have to say that since the beginning of this conversation, my compassion for more complex views and deferring views has been increased. And also a deeper understanding of my own and how easy it is to be in a trap of self. I hope for you, the listener, that compassion for people who don't agree with you can be increased because that's actually how we get to that space of curiosity. Like I always recognize that everyone comes to their view generally, unless they're psychopathic, from a place of of love. Like we're all just trying to protect ourselves, love each other, live longer, create connection, family relationship. And how we get there isn't always the most (laughs) tender way, but I agree with you. I have the same sense of optimism and hope, and I'm very grateful that you took the time and made the time to broaden our perspectives. I thanks for the opportunity to participate in this conversation. You're you're a rock star in my world. I can't wait to re-listen to this podcast again. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so you know I had a good time.
Yeah, me too. I'm I'm really thank you for taking the time. Seriously, I these are the conversations we need so that we can all just maybe take a little moment to put ourselves in other people's shoes. And for the people listening, Renee, where can they find more of you? Where can they consume your books? Sure, and sure, 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 sure. which would be the first one of your books that you'd recommend for them to consume to broaden these perspectives? Well, since we talked about propaganda, Mind Over Media, you can go see all the cool online stuff I put at mindovermedia.tv. Most of my work is at the Media Education Lab. So that's uh, my research lab at the University of Rhode Island. Uh, mediaeducationlab.com. Another future topic, Mark, could be this idea of learning by creating media. That's my book called Create to Learn. And the idea of making media as a way to better understand your own values and to better develop your abilities to use language and to use visual images to for self-expression and for advocacy and collaboration. So create to learn dot online. That's another place to go. That sounds really interesting. So in the act of engaging, of trying to bring visual and media representation to your own thoughts and beliefs, you are then gaining the perspective of how other people do that in the, their creations. And so, ah, that's really interesting that through the application, you recognize the intentions. Yeah, because in a way... Because that's right, because in a way, it can't just all be about analyzing media. It also, you have to be putting your voice out there, right? Just like you learned a lot about the power of language as you become a podcaster because you realize the power of creating as a pedagogy, as a way to learn, shouldn't just be restricted to like when you're in school and for an assignment. It's actually the best way to learn anything. I feel like that can be really transformative for people who think of themselves as lifelong learners. Say, oh, make media, you know, get your, get your, get your, get your cell phone out, make a video about that. Right. Get in the arena as Brene Brown quotes, like get in the arena with us, you know, <laughs> Brene, thanks so much. I really appreciate your time. And I know that you are in European time, but in North America right now. So thanks for staying up to have this conversation. <laughs> I, really I enjoyed it, Mark. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Thanks, Renee. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. If this episode resonated with you, one of the best ways to support the show is to go subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any more. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to it, or share the episode with your community on Instagram or whatever social place you like to hang out. This helps get it into more people's ears, and I'm so grateful for your support, always. Thanks again for tuning in. Much love. 